hockey fans, welcome to Across the Pond, Hockey Talks, Volume 22. I'm your host, Chris Ivany, and my guest today is from beautiful British Columbia. He played 11 seasons in the NHL for the Colorado Rockies, the New York Rangers, and a brief stint in L.A. with the Kings. He was the captain of the Rangers for five seasons, a five-time NHL All-Star, Memorial Cup champion and MVP, a WHL Player of the Year, twice suited up for Team Canada, and was inducted into the BC Hockey Hall of Fame. He's currently working with the Hong Kong Academy of Ice Hockey. He is easily the biggest hitter in Hong Kong's hockey world, both literally and figuratively. Please welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks, Mr. Barry Beck. How you doing today, Barry? Hi, Chris. Nice to be here. Nice to be with you. Barry, let's go all the way back to your uh, childhood. Uh, I know you're, you're from the Vancouver area. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and uh, your family growing up in, in BC. Yeah, when you when you mentioned beautiful British Columbia, yeah. it, it's certainly made me miss being back home. And with the travel restrictions that are happening right now, it's it's pretty tough to get back. And, yeah. and uh, But I grew up in East Vancouver, uh, played my minor hockey out of the Peony Form, which is one of the buildings that is still uh, on the Peony grounds uh, before the Pacific Coliseum was built. And um, so I played my minor hockey in that area, went on to play uh, from Bantam um, Junior B with the Vancouver Junior Canucks, where Ron Matthews was my coach. He was a former player in the Western Hockey League with the Vancouver Canucks. And... Um, from the Vancouver Junior Canucks, I uh, went on to play Tier 2 uh, Junior A out in Langley mm -hmm. for the Langley Lords and uh, sort of continued on from there. Um, we got a chance to play, well, I got a chance to play against a lot of good players in that league and a lot of them played in Bellingham, which was New Newest Mr. Bruins farm team. Okay. And uh, one was uh, Stan Smeal, mm -hmm. Brad Maxwell, Harold Filipoff, a lot of... A lot of good players. And um, from there, um, my brother had played for the Vancouver Nats that were in the WCHL, Major Junior League. Mm -hmm. And he had been released by them, and Ernie McLean had picked him up. And my brother had told Ernie McLean, he said, listen, you got to come out to Langley to see my brother play. Uh, I think he's going to be a pretty good player. Hmm. So Ernie was going to come out and see... One of my games, we were playing against Bellingham in Langley at the Civic Center. And um, Murray said, no, you better make sure you put on a show when Ernie comes out. So I think Harold and I fought three times, and Harold <laughs> is a big guy. Yeah. And uh, I think that sort of cemented the fact that uh, Ernie was going to try and get me uh, to come and play in New Westminster. Now, I had already been going to see New Westminster Bruins game out of Queen's Park Arena, and yeah. they were... They were really something to see. At that time, the Canucks didn't have a very good team. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the the biggest ticket in town was Queen's Park Arena and the newest Mr. Bruins. So Ernie had requested that my mother and father uh, write in a letter to Ed Chenoff, who was the commissioner, that they wanted me to stay closer to home because uh, for my schooling because I played in Langley and I would have been going to Kamloops. I was Kamloops property. Right. So after that, uh, there was a trade made, uh, got traded for five players and uh, started my career with, uh, with the newest Mr. Bruins, which was a great three years of playing for 
Ernie and uh, with a lot of great players. And you had some amazing seasons there. We, we had a ninety-nine point season, Memorial Cup win, and an and an MVP of the Memorial Cup. Tell us a little bit about that uh, about that experience. Yeah, we three years in a row we went to the Memorial Cup, and that's unheard of. And almost. then won the last year. Fortunately, yeah. uh, Brad Maxwell scored a big goal. And uh, uh, Ottawa that we played in the finals had Bobby Smith and Doug Wilson, Pat Riggin, Steve Payne. They had a lot of a lot of good players, and mm -hmm. and um, so that was uh, you know I have to, have to tell the story that Ernie had taken us to a hotel the night before the game. He didn't want us staying at home. He wanted the Memorial Cup final. Uh, uh, Memorial Cup final in Vancouver. Okay. So once stayed at this motel out in Kingsway. And um, anyways, the pillows were all different. So I had woke up in the morning, and I couldn't move my neck. I mean, the, the pillows were too high. I couldn't get comfortable. So here it was, the biggest game uh, on the line, and I could not my, move my neck either way. I could only look straight. So they had to try and get this, the, 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 whatever had happened, uh, the muscles relaxed in my neck to be able to play. So it was a massage with heat. And still, after, maybe to the second period, I still wasn't feeling very good. So I didn't have the greatest game that last game. And so that's why I've just felt very fortunate that we were able to win. <laughs> yeah. And I only lived a block and a half away from uh, the Pacific Coliseum. So we had a big party at, uh, at my place after the game. And all the players came back and fans. And it was crazy. And uh, How was your neck feeling then? Well, my, <laughs> my neck was... Feeling better, I would say. Yeah. A couple hours after the party, I, yeah. I didn't feel my neck anymore. <laughs> and uh, Barry, growing up, <clears throat> were you a multi-sport guy, or would you were you focused on hockey mainly? No, I was multi-sport. I like to. I usually play, put the hockey gear away, and went run, went right into the uh, uh, baseball season. Yeah. Uh, which a lot of players do in in uh, in uh, in Canada. I know. Up when I went down, I was playing in L.A. I played with Marty McSorley and. Marty said, uh, we had some spare time. Let's go out on the beach and throw the baseball around. So I says, yeah, sure, okay. So we're on the beach, and Marty grabs a hardball and throws it at me like about 90 miles an hour. <laughs> so he used to play, I read a little bit more about it. He told me the story. He used to play some well, quite, a, quite a bit of baseball also. So, yeah. so a lot of baseball. I played basketball, and uh, I also played football. So I played mainly those four sports. I didn't play a lot of lacrosse. Right. There, there was a lot of well, that was box. pretty popular in that area. Yeah, right? there, was, there yeah. was a lot of box lacrosse. Yeah, and it was tough when we used to go watch them play. I, I used to go, man, how come there's not more fights going on here? But <laughs> yeah. then you you would eventually see those. Yeah. So they had some good teams in the Lower Mainland, mm -hmm. and uh, so we would go see and uh, go and watch some games. But I never really participated in much right. lacrosse at all. Did you, uh, were you always a defenseman? No, I wasn't. I was, uh, I think, mainly a, a forward. My first year at Peewee, I was uh, on the third line and playing left wing. And uh, so um, Bobby Orr was just coming into the league in the NHL then, and, and uh, he was sort of one of my idols. Yeah. And... Uh, watching him play, and that sort of made me make the switch back. And I thought I would get some more ice time playing defense than I than I was at forward on, on playing left wing. Yeah. And um, 
so I made that transition, and um, yeah, I, I played defense always after that. But you, uh, you're not well d during your time in, in junior. You kind of carved out that enforcer's tough guy role, but you also put up a lot of points. So, um, what what part of the game were you most comfortable with, and and were you just always trying to kind of balance between a, an offensive defenseman and still being able to get the job done in, in your own end? Yeah, well, we had, I mean, that we're talking about the mid-70s, so that's when the Flyers won their two cups and they played that intimidating style of hockey, yeah. and that wouldn't change until Montreal beat them the, the following year when they swept them in four games, and it was sort of Montreal's game against the Flyers' game, and then that sort of started to change the game of the intimidating factor. Yeah. Uh, uh, nowadays, when... You know, you would go up the face off it. We would say some things that we would have said back in the 70s or 80s. Guys would just look at you. They're making $8 million. They would just laugh at you. Yeah. So it was a different game, and we played the same style as the Flyers did. We had a lot of good, talented players, and we had some tough players, and then Ernie was able to get the most out of each player. Right. And that's why we... We won three years in a row. We we played against some good teams. I yeah. mean, Brandon Wheat King, Saskatoon Blades. They they were heavy hitters in <clears throat> in the Western Canada Hockey League at that time, and um, so we were we were able to go with Memorial Cup three years in a row, which was yeah, quite that's an achievement. Kind of unheard of, isn't it? I mean, I'm just I don't know the stats off of hand. Well, off, I think Kamloops went there four years in a row. Yeah, I think so. They. Couldn't happen too many hold that times. record, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty tough to do it, and I mean, you only have a certain amount of time in junior. You yeah. think you have a better chance to win a Stanley Cup uh, if you're if you make the NHL because yeah. you're going to have more years right. to play and maybe get a better chance at at winning that than you will the Memorial Cup. But right. uh, it was the other way around for me. Wow. Certainly an amazing experience. And like I said, you, you carved out a role there as, a, as an enforcer, as a tough guy, but also putting up big numbers um, and leading the team, obviously, uh, to a Memorial Cup and being the MVP. When did the phone start ringing from the NHL teams? Well, at that time, it was just really word of mouth from some scouts we knew uh, that, would, that would always come to the, the Bruin games and we became friendly with. So there was a lot of talk that, I was going to be drafted at age 17. They were starting to draft some underage players there yeah. from the WHA, and then there were lawsuits, and a lot of things were starting to change. Um, my my last year, I got a call from Montreal, and they said that they were going to try to move up, and this was one of the things that Montreal always tried to do yeah. in the draft, was try yeah. to get the number one or two pick, and... Uh, and to trade some some of their players away. Yeah. But I had said that I didn't want to go to Montreal when I was playing in Langley. There was a uh, we were told before the game that a Montreal scout was coming to watch us play. So all the all of us were all pumped up. Okay, we got a Montreal scout here. And three four days later, in the Langley local paper, that same scout was interviewed. And he named off eight players that he thought had a chance to make the NHL, and my name wasn't one of them. Oh no! So that's a mistake. So after Come that, on, Habs. after that, I hated Montreal. Oh, after that, that disappoints. So me. as much as I was always, you know, it was either you're either in Canada, we're a Toronto or Montreal yeah, fan. Uh, 
because you only got to see those games. That's right. On Hockey Night in Canada growing up. So it was usually the Western, somewhere, somewhere mostly Toronto fans or, or so. Um, But... Well, it's disappointing that to hear as a Habs fan that they missed out on a chance of having Barry back in the lineup. Um, So it wasn't all bad news because the draft came and you ended up being drafted second overall um, to the Colorado Rockies. And how would the draft work in those days? Were you, did people go to the draft? Were you waiting by the phone? How did that experience roll out for you? Yeah, you, you waited by the phone. They didn't do the draft the way that they do now. Right. Where it's a, where it's a big deal. Right. So we waited by the phone and I had talked with Colorado and talked with Ray Miron after talking with Montreal and uh, they had told me that they were going to take me at the number two spot and that was where I really wanted to go. I thought that it was a young team and I would get a chance to play play a lot, uh, which I did. Uh, yeah. When I got there, I played power play, penalty killing, and I, and I really got a chance to do everything. So, so I learned a lot about the game and sort of playing the system that we did in New Westminster I don't want to say it was an easy jump to make cause, yeah, because course. it's not, but it just seemed like everybody played their position more. Each level that you go up, you know that it's going to be faster and the players are going to be stronger. So you have to do what you need to do in the off season mm-hmm. uh, to be able to get ready for that. Right. So I was already training, and I know there's a lot of talk of players back then that they only they came to training camp to get in shape. Right. but. But um, when I, you know, I was the uh, Colorado's first choice and we went to training camp and they did a bunch of testing on us, uh, we had to run a mile, yeah. four laps around the track. And I got to the third lap and I dove into the infield <laughs> and I laid on the grass for a second because I was so dizzy because it was a, it's a mile high. Oh, right. And the, uh, the altitude, I, I wasn't used to the altitude. Yeah. And I had just come in and thought I could do what I wanted to do and here they're looking at me and the doctor's <laughs> got to look at me now because see if something's wrong with me and it was and it was just the altitude so right. that's sort of even though we didn't have the greatest record we were able to compete with some teams yeah. fairly close because by the time the third period came around they were sort of feeling the effects of the altitude that's right. why when some of the eastern teams came out, they made a point of going down to Colorado Springs and staying for a few days. It was sort of right, their western get trip, yeah. get acclimated to the altitude, and then right. not that they were that worried about playing us, <laughs> but uh, uh, we did. Uh, my first year, we played Philly, and we gave them a little scare in the first round of the playoffs. So the first game went in overtime, and then they beat us three one in a short series uh, back home. Well, you certainly made the transition look. Uh, a lot easier than it was. Your rookie season, you, you put up 22 goals and 60 points. Uh, that's a hell of a start. And if it wasn't for a guy named Mike Bossy, you would have likely won the Calder Trophy that year. How uh, I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, but how were you able to have so much success right away in the NHL? You might have already answered that. but Well, I, I, I played with a good defense partner in John Van Boxmeer who had a great shot, and he knew that I liked to to shoot a lot and so he, he was a good passer and we sort of fed off each other and uh, and I just um, uh, thought that I needed to become more of offensive 
as you mentioned in yeah. uh, in junior, I scored ninety nine points. I think Brad Maxwell and I both in the one year had ninety nine points and went into our last game. I think we played it at the Coliseum. Ernie uh, was against Medicine Hat. Anyways, we had a big brawl and we both Brad and I got thrown out of the game. So none of us got to 100 points. We were sort of <laughs> had a little side bet going that, yeah, okay, we'll see who it. gets to 100 first. Yeah. Well, none of us did. So um, I forgot what we were talking about now. Oh, just how, much, how you managed to have so much success that first uh, year. Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think I just really, I mean, I just found where I needed to be. Uh, I, I dreamt of playing in the NHL as a kid. Had all the hockey cards at elementary school and right. used to play whatever we played, uh, throwing them up against the wall, leansies and yeah. and all that. And I had stacks and stacks of hockey cards and yeah. used to go through them at all. And and now I had a chance to play. And uh, one of the first exhibition games I played was against Chicago and Bobby Orr was playing for them. And this was right at the end of his career and you could really see that he was laboring, trying to skate. Yeah. He couldn't turn on the one way, and we were saying on the bench, we were saying, like, man, he shouldn't even be playing. Right. Anyways, this is when players on the other team, you know, you didn't talk to anybody on the other team. Mm -hmm. You know, now players know each other. Uh, they do a lot of commercials and yeah. with so, uh, social... Um, not social distancing, I got social, social distancing. Media. Um, but with all the pl social platforms there, yeah. they, they all know each other. Right. And But back then, the, the, you just didn't do that. But after the game, I was standing out in the hallway and Bobby Orr came up to me and said, he thought, uh, he, he first of all, he introduced himself and uh, then he thought, they said, you're going to have a great career and good luck to you. And wow. that really meant a lot to me. Yeah, that's and, amazing. And uh, sort of have my idol come over and yeah. wish me luck. So so things my my first year just seemed to fall into place. I wanted to be more offensive. I thought that defense should be joining the attack more. Um, some coaches like you to dump the puck in and get your four checkers working and then it's such a game of speed now yeah. and and pace and puck possession that shooting the puck in doesn't make doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And the in the early 80s, I don't want to jump too far ahead because no, we're okay. sort of going. That's all right. Uh, jump around. The right, right place, but I'll, I'll maybe get to Herb Brooks in, in a little bit. But yeah, yeah that first year, thing, uh, things just fell into place and I was very comfortable. And, and uh, but that would soon change. Yep. Well, you um, you played with a lot of uh, big names. You had a lot of big big names coach you. In your third season with the, with Colorado, legendary coach Don Cherry came to town. Um, what were your early impressions of Don as a coach? And can you tell us the story surrounding your trade out of Colorado? Well, Don is a Don was a player's coach. I mean, if you want, you played hard and you competed hard, then you wouldn't have a problem with him. But if you didn't. Or if you shied away from the corners or, or you didn't want to get inside the perimeter, mm -hmm. uh, then he would most likely have a talk with you. And uh, so, I mean, I mean, I liked him as a coach. Uh, I didn't have a problem. That wasn't the reason that I got traded at the time. Mm -hmm. I was re trying to renegotiate my contract. I signed a five-year contract, and uh, 
then realized that a guy sitting on the bench was making three times as much money uh, or three or three times more money than me yeah. and and I was three times the player he was so uh, didn't think my agent did it did a very good job so that was all happening at the same time there was talk of Colorado moving to New Jersey I didn't want to go to New Jersey I told him we had a good team in in uh, Denver and that the team was only going to get better and that eventually we would we would become a winner yeah and um, but behind the scenes Sonny Werblin who was a man behind the Rangers and Arthur Imperatore um, his family owned uh, uh, the Rockies and they were a big trucking company out of out of New Jersey and they were uh, behind the scenes already making the deal and so when the Rangers came to town and uh, uh, I went in to see we, we were playing and but it was a I think two days before and we were having a, a practice and uh, was in taping our sticks up and Don Cherry's dog Blue came down the hallway and he was always at the rink anyways but he came down in front of my stall and I went to pet him and I guess he had an itchy backside, and he was sort of doing it when the when the dogs twirl around their butts on the floor, and yeah. it, we did it right in front Scratching of his butt. front of my stall, yeah. where I did my push ups and everything. And so I grabbed my stick and I gave him a little slap on the rear end, and he let out a yelp and he went running down the hallway. And Don came peeling out of the office and said, "Which one of you guys hit blue?" And uh, there was three of us there. There was Randy Pearson. There was Andy Spruce. And we all looked at each other like, nobody hit him. We were just playing with him. Yeah. And they said, if I find out, that guy's going to get traded. So two days later, I went in to go to practice. Rangers were about to play them the next night. And um, Don comes in and calls me into the office, says he wants to see me. And I go in and he says, congratulations, you're a millionaire. <laughs> and I said, what? What's going on? He says, well, we just traded you to the Rangers. So I was in I was in shock because the general manager had told me they weren't going to trade me. And, right. And um, very suspicious circumstances so, around the trade. Yeah. So, so I sort of went home and had a cry with my girlfriend. And, yeah. Because when I used to go into New York, I never liked going into New York City. I, I never got a feel for it. The older guys, the veteran guys on the team, they always had their places in each city where they would take the rookies, and you had to go with them. And uh, they were usually the kind of places that we weren't going, the younger guys weren't going to. And so, but you had to go with them and be part of the team. Yeah. And so I never really got a, a good feel because we were always in and out of New York City so quickly because we would go out to the island and play the Islanders usually the next night. So we never spent any time in, right. in New York City. And um, uh, so, yeah, that was... That was another second time I was traded for five players. Right. And, and you were heading to the Big Apple, like one of the biggest hockey markets in the world. Um, as, it, as it was, it was maybe a little bit of a shock for you, but when it sunk in, how did that feel? Well, it took a while to sink in. Uh, we, we fortunately had a, uh, we're on a bit of a road trip, the Rangers, and they went up to Vancouver, was our game after Colorado. That game I played for the Rangers against Colorado, we lost 7-2, to two, I think it was, against the Rockies. So 
that was a big deal for them. All right. of a sudden, I could hear some of the, the fans saying things to me, and I'm going, hey, here I was just the star player. And yeah. so I got a feeling of what New York would be like yeah. uh, right away. Uh, because there you have to be good every night, right. especially if you get traded for five players, you better be the star of the game every night. Right. And that's one thing that I had to come to to learn mm-hmm. was the pressure of playing on the East Coast and either the middle of the country or or uh, or playing out in L.A. Uh, was much different. The feeling was much different. It okay. was win or lose every game. Uh, well, it was a big deal. So. So I had to get used to that pressure, and sort of, sort of took me, took me a couple of years. Uh, I think once, once they, it was right before they made me captain, uh, that I just started to get comfortable. We started to get some uh, more pieces to the team uh, in place, and uh, of course the Islanders were great in the early '80s, and we were always trying to to run them down. And we kept getting better through the early 80s, and we were almost getting equal with them by the time they were sort of getting to the end of their tenure. But then you had the Oilers right on the doorstep ready to come in. So, Yeah, some dynasties there. Um, for the next six and a half seasons, you were, you were a mainstay on the Rangers' blue line. You were the team captain and proved to be one of the toughest and hardest guys to play against in the league. And you talked about the difference between playing in the East and, and the West Coast. How were you able to uh, to manage those expectations night in and night out at MSG? Well, the 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 good or the main thing about being a good pro is you got to be consistent, mm-hmm. and that means you got to be good every night. So the good players are good every night. There there's no nights off. You know the the rinks nowadays they're they're a lot very similar to each other right. but back then they were they were different the boston garden was different than the spectrum uh which was different than chicago stadium and yeah. each rink uh, had different sight lines so some felt good and some weren't so good and so those games that the sight lines were good then i usually had good games in but is there a particular rink that comes to mind when you think of a tough well, there, place to play or a bad my, my well one of the places i I never really had a great. I don't think I had a great game. Was was Toronto, and that might have been because my uncle was there, and uh, my uncle had some problems and would always come to the game, and and I don't know if I had that on my mind all the time or what was or, or the ice. It was just something that the boards were really hard in Toronto, mm-hmm. and I liked the boards to have a little give and the glass to have a little give uh, because I was I, don't know, I was a power player. Yeah. And of course, I'm up and battling against the boards all the time. So, yeah. when the boards are hard, and you come out after a game, I mean, usually you've got a lot of ice bags all over you after the game. So, so I like the the rinks like St. Louis, the old Checker Dome, and the Igloo in Pittsburgh. They always had a lot of a lot of give. And then the the mics were always down around the the glass. So when you were listening to the games, it was just a big crash. And, right. Uh, had great sound effects. He didn't have to add anything. Um, so there are some rinks that players do uh, feel more comfortable in, yeah. Of course. And you were a part of some good Rangers teams. You all, you, you just mentioned um, it was a little bit unfortunate the Islanders were so strong at that point because you guys were, you know, you went deep into the playoffs there for a few years in a row. Um, tell me about some of those teams and, and how close do you think you were to, uh, to, to competing or winning, uh, winning a Stanley Cup? Well, we got close a couple of times, 
um, I think, uh, you know, when Herb Brooks came to, uh, uh, to the Rangers after uh, uh, USA, Team USA won the gold medal in Lake Placid, uh, mm -hmm. that changed everything. Uh, our 45-minute practices that we had with Fred Shiro uh, now became sometimes two-and-a-half, three-hour practices on ice. So it was a lot different. You had to be able to skate because he wanted to attack with five players. Okay. So everybody had to be in motion. There was no dumping the puck in. It was throwing a, throwing the puck back to the D, regrouping, and uh, then attacking again. And then if there was nothing open again, we come back, filter the puck back, and we and we do it again. And so it really became fun to play hockey. I mean, it was more about puck possession, wasn't getting rid of the puck. And it was about more back end support, so you could attack with speed, mm -hmm. and it was a fun fun game to play. So, I mean, Herb was a great coach. Yeah, I mean, one of the best of all time. Like his creativity behind the bench is, uh, you know, second to none. I yeah, think. Yeah, he was just he was just hockey driven twenty four hours a day. Right, and that can take a toll on your relationships with your players. Depends what kind of coach you are. I mean, at the NHL level. The bottom line is you have to win. So some coaches have their own way of coaching. And uh, for me, I always felt that just give us the, the right directions and we're men. Uh, most have families and uh, we don't need to be talked to like we're kids. Right. Uh, we know what we have to do. And if we don't do it, we don't get the job done, then we didn't fulfill our end of the contract. Right. So, so then you have to ex have to accept that. But right. the main thing about being, as I said, is you just have to be consistent, mm -hmm. and that comes with putting time into practice. Right. Those that first couple years in New York, you know, forty five minute practice with Fred, and uh, then the guys who lived in the city, the five of us, we would peel out of there after practice and get back to the city, because we pr most likely needed to get some sleep. Yeah. Uh, so we could go out and have dinner again and then go through our normal ritual Start it all over in, again. in New York City, yeah. which was which was the nightlife. So Right. Uh, so let's let's go right into that. You were the captain of the New York Rangers. What what did that mean in the city of New York at the time and, and what did you basically have a key to the city? Well, there's I can tell you there, there's a lot of times where I didn't have a key to the city. I could tell you more times when I didn't have it than I did have it. <laughs> But yeah, there are of course a lot of uh, fringe benefits uh, yeah. uh, of playing in the city and restaurants, uh, bars, clubs. You're, you're sort of able to do what you want to do, yeah. and uh, you just have to be careful. And you and should be careful. The teams nowadays of the younger players coming up. You know, we, we talk about some of the players that had some problems and not so much that but some of the Canadian guys like Ron Greshner from Good Soil Saskatchewan played 16 years for the New York Rangers the only team who also played in Westminster and uh, I mean he's from, he's from Good Soil Saskatchewan so I think there's 400 people listed in the population from Good Soil so if you're taken from Good Soil and thrown right into New York City you know, you can you can have some problems. Yeah. Or the younger players should be playing with some older, or should be living with some of the uh, 
uh, older players and their families to get them acclimated to what happens instead of just throwing them into the fire. Of course. And so who are some of the guys that uh, you paired up with and, and some of the guys that helped you along the way and learn what it was like to be a professional in a city like New York? Well, I think my first year when we were losing to Philadelphia in the playoffs and the uh, the team had gone to the finals, it was the first time that I ever felt any booze come in my, my direction. And uh, even though we won won that particular game, I think we lost in five games, but we won that fourth game. Uh, it was still, it was still tough for me to hear. And uh, so, so that was, that was tough learning, learning about uh, as a young player, learning about the East coast. And, and uh, you know, there, like I said, there was five of us who lived in the city. Uh, Phil Esposito was one of them. And I remember go- going home from the game after that game, and he told me, listen, when I first came here, I got booed. He said, most of the players that have always played here have been booed. They haven't, or we haven't won the cup here in 40 years. So if things don't work out, that's the way you have to accept it and try and try and change it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I eventually started to do. I eventually put more time in at practice and worked harder and you know, there was quite a few uh, optional practices during the year, and I, I didn't miss any of those. I made sure I went to the rink, and I was a bigger part of the team, and that helped me with my game and felt m- me more like I, I was a New Yorker and uh, sort of had gotten my feet wet after those those first two years, which were, which were difficult years for me. And then I started to become a, a much better player. And uh, sort of, you know, I know I didn't put up the same stats I did as I did my first year in Colorado, but I think I was a better player overall in the mid-'80s than I was when I first broke into the league. Well, there's no question. If you, remain, if you become the captain of the New York Rangers and you stay there for five seasons, you obviously learned what it took to be that leader and, and what it was like to be, uh, to be the leader of an NHL team. And your, your style of play could be described as, I've said, intense, fearless, hard-nosed. That style can be very hard on your body. Um, and I, re- I read where you said one time, the strength of my game is my strength. When did that first injury happen, uh, and how did that eventually lead to um, kind of your body breaking down from, from the years of physical and intense play? Yeah, I, th- I think the 84 season when... When I first separated my shoulder, I had uh, a, a couple of bad injuries when I when I played for the Rangers. And one was when I got hit in front of the net in practice. With uh, uh, we were scrimmaging, and uh, Carol Vadney went to shoot the puck, and I sort of got turned sideways in front of the net. He was shooting from the blue line while we were scrimmaging, and Cam Connor went out and stuck his stick out, and the puck ricocheted off and took off and hit me in the mouth and cut me pretty bad. Both lips were were cut straight through and I think I had 60, 65 stitches. Five teeth were fractured. After I went to the hospital and they stitched me up, then I had to go to the dentist and at the hospital they had missed some spots stitching me up way down and deep. So uh, the dentist had to refreeze me to to stitch me up but then he tried to pull my teeth without the freezing 
Oh, no. And it was the first tooth that he tried to pull where I thought my head was going to go through the ceiling. <laughs> or his. <laughs> so, so I said, I don't think this is working. And I yeah. could barely talk by then anyways because, uh, you know, I was in... I was in quite a bit of pain, but yeah. but so another one was when I got like a skate under the eye and sixty eight stitches from my nose to the outside of my my right eye where I almost lost my eye. But the the one where I felt the most pain was when I first uh, broke a bone in my AC joint was in the eighty four playoffs when we were trying to eliminate the Islanders, and that's when I. Uh, had sustained my injury yeah. and then we went on and played the fifth game in uh, Long Island and that game is, is repeated quite often on a hockey night in Canada because it's a game that went in overtime and uh, it was just wide open in overtime and either team could have won uh, Kenny Morrow scored and uh, so the Islanders went on again uh, and to win the cup that year again mm -hmm. so like I say, they were very strong. I mean, if you look at a team and you see they got eight or nine guys in the Hockey Hall of Fame, yeah. they got a pretty good pretty good squad. Yeah, it was a tough time, oh. definitely, to be playing against the Islanders. So your first shoulder injury, after that, um, did you try to change your style of play? Where, I mean, with your, with your play and the, the way you played the game, a shoulder injury would just be devastating. Um, how were you able to battle through it? Were you trying to make adjustments to your style? And um, what were your uh, overall like opinions about how you were dealing with that injury? Well, when I came back, I uh, I, I felt good. And uh, I can't say that I felt 100% uh, because I would say before the injury on on the bench, I was... I was doing about 450 pounds, and there was nobody in the NHL. There, were, there was no steroids around at that time. Yeah, I never saw any uh, when I played in the NHL, and um, so I, I had lost some strength and wasn't as comfortable. And over the next two years after that, I had one more surgery, and then I had six separations within two years. So I would come back, I would play ten games and then take another hit. And I mean, I could only really play one style of game. And that was a power game. Yeah. That was making sure that forwards knew that they had to pay a price when they came into our end. And uh, maybe offensively, I, I wasn't worried so much offensively uh, about my game, but just was really taking care of our own end. Because I played with a partner, oh, I played with quite a few partners actually, yeah. but uh, Herb Brooks said, Part, partnered me up with Rail Ratzelanen, which was, uh, Rail was maybe 5'9", five, 5'8", five, and, uh, and just such a great skater. So, and this was when the red line was still in play. Right. So I would just tell him to go. I would get the puck wherever in our zone, and he would go, and I would look for him out near the red line somewhere. I would just have to put the puck out there so he could come and skate into it. So he was a great offensive player. And ironically, um, I don't know if it was 80, oh, 80, maybe 88. No, that was when Calgary won the cup. Maybe it was 80, 89. It was when the Oilers, Oilers won the cup again, where Glenn Sather had called me and um, 
asked if I wanted to come and play for the Oilers. This is when I... This was after you had stepped away? This is when I stepped away from, after my my two years of going through the the separations. I just needed to get away from the game and and see if maybe I would have a chance to play later. So I retired, and uh, then I spent years, or three years, not playing, and playing in Vancouver, playing pickup hockey with my friends, and and then I started to get into some serious rehab work with Alex McKechnie, out of Vancouver, who worked a lot with L.A. Lakers and Shaquille O'Neal, and and uh, I felt good, and uh, I would eventually come back and and play in L.A. Uh, yeah, tell for, us how you got that opportunity. Well, I got a call from Wayne Gretzky, and he had said uh, he had heard that I wanted to come back, and he said they had a lot of good players down in L.A. and um, yeah. It's hard to refuse that phone call. Yeah, he he had uh, wanted me to be part of the team. And so that's when I contacted my agent and told New York and L.A. to see what kind of deal that they could work out. And so eventually, I don't know what it was. uh, By then, I was all the way down to a fourth-round draft choice. Right. So it wasn't a a big price to pay, although there are players that go on from later rounds to to have great careers. But the thing is, the opportunity came. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you managed to play 52 games that year with the with the Kings, and you got to share a locker room with 99. What was that like? Well, that was, you know, when I when I mentioned Bobby Orr's name, I also played against Gordie Howe yeah. uh, that same year, and he was 52, and he was playing for Hartford, uh, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when I when I thought about it. I mean, I got to play against Gordy Howe. I got to play against Bobby Orr. I got to play against Mario Lemieux, Wayne Gretzky. You know, all the all the best, all the t- players that are considered the best. I either played against or with. Mm-hmm. And um, with Wayne, I mean, you wouldn't know going to practice who Wayne Gretzky was if you didn't know him, um, because he just went out and had fun at practice and enjoyed himself and so did the rest of the players but we took playing against him in practice much more seriously than he did yeah. playing against us such as one-on-ones where the defenseman would go no let me take Wayne this time and we would be in line going no I got Wayne I got Wayne this time yeah so and he would come down and one-on-one he would be laughing at you and you, you'd be going come on come on and uh he was just uh uh a great guy to be around for the team. Took care of the younger guys, and we always had a lot of fun. I mean, it was it was crazy time uh, back then uh, when you would go on the road with them. I mean, everyone else was allowed to bring on a road trip. I think you were allowed to bring six sticks. Where Wayne had like eight dozen sticks, he had to bring. Uh, had his own stick bag, just because uh, he had to sign so many sticks and right. and and. Uh, and give him away. And I remember we played in Vancouver. My brother came into the dressing room after the game, and I introduced him to Wayne. And and my brother had a hockey card of Wayne and asked Wayne if Wayne would sign. He says, "No, I'm sorry, I don't sign any hockey cards." So my brother was sort of disappointed. And then Wayne went away, and then uh, Wayne came back with a stick and signed it and per- personally signed it to my brother. And amazing. So that was sort of that's the kind of the guy he is and. And, uh, I mean, 
you can see what he's done for the game and how what yeah. what how it opened it up to the other cities in the United States and how it grew the game and and now there are players playing in, in the NHL uh you know from all over yeah. uh, from 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 Texas from California Florida they they all have programs community programs the NHL teams there now where players come out of there and go and are able to play division 1 hockey and uh, and then go on and get a chance to play professionally from there. Yeah, it's certainly uh, there's no doubt uh, the effect Wayne had on, on the game and the development of the game, and especially in the southern U.S. So, Barry, you had an amazing career. Um, the time came to hang him up. What was life like, first of all, right, at, right after you, you, you finished playing? What was life like after hockey? Well, it was terrible for me. I mean, sort of. I I wasn't I wasn't ready for it, and I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't ready for it the first time, and uh, in '87, you know, when it rolled around, and because your whole life is regimented for you, you're you're told to be someplace at a certain time, and you can never be late. Yeah, and that's one thing as a coach that 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 we teach is you you can never be late. Doesn't matter traffic or whatever you just always make sure that you're you're early um so so it was it was tough for me yeah it uh you know like i had gone through my career and i know a lot of players don't win the stanley cup but after winning the the memorial cup it just seemed like a natural step for me to finish my career off and so that left a sort of a bad taste in my mouth and for for quite some time, yeah, and it really I, I just wanted nothing to do with hockey really for quite a while, and then I eventually moved up into the Okanagan, and I moved up to Soyuz to be closer to my mom and dad. My dad was uh, had dementia. My mother was looking after him at home, and it was tough on her, and so I had spent a lot of time away from them. So it was sort of my turn to to go in and help look after them and and that's how I got interested in hockey game in in youth hockey was with the local coaches that were up there in a Soyuz and and um, just because you played in the NHL doesn't mean you know how to coach I mean yeah you know you you have to go through certain certifications and that still doesn't mean you're 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 a good coach so a lot of things with NHL players is is they take a lot of things for granted that players should know. Little parts of details of the game. Why don't you have your skate sharpened before the game, or why aren't you ready to play? Or mm-hmm. so these little things. Uh, so, and 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 living in Hong Kong now, you never really get to coach eighty games a year. So your coaches are 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 really going going to uh, struggle. If they're if they're not coaching games, they they don't learn how to manage a bench. And the adults, besides the national team, usually adult leagues here. If you try to get a coach behind the bench, they're not going to listen to you anyways. Right. So it would be nice to have in the adult leagues for there to be a coach behind the bench, and it would give it some more credibility. Mm-hmm. But nobody will listen. They all think they're coaches themselves. Right. And and some so of them that, are. That's some of the biggest challenges yeah. you've faced with with coaching here. That's that's one of the challenges. The other is is really the cost. Yeah, is that I mean, shouldn't cost so much money for kids to play hockey, and then 
I think for me, when I when I first came here, what year was it? Your first arrived? I think it was two thousand seven. Okay. So thirteen plus years now. Yeah. And uh, so it was sort of my goal was to put a kid in the NHL. Yeah. It's my time here. Try to get somebody either into major junior hockey or division one hockey and then get a chance to play in the mm -hmm. NHL and that would open up a lot of things here. Right. But in this in this culture it's very, very difficult to do because of course academics is first. Yeah. And uh, there are no professional teams anyways. There's not a professional hockey team here. And uh, or basketball. Yeah. So if the CBA was here or if the KHL were here, that would make a big difference. Right. But they don't have the venues to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's unfortunate that they don't have an 18,000-seat arena here. I mean, I know we look at the times right now uh, uh, with the virus and the tough times of the protests and how disruptive everybody's life has been in, mm -hmm. in Hong Kong here. And that's, of course, a whole other set of challenges that right. we weren't even faced with. Uh, when I when I first came here, uh, really when I first came, it was all about the cost and about players buying in to the product. Mm -hmm. What was the what was the culture around hockey when you first got here? Was there anything like it is now, and, and how much have you seen it change? Well, I think it's there. You know, there. I mean, we are, we are a grassroots program, so we want to get more kids playing hockey. And that's always been our chairman, Thomas Wu's thoughts, is to give more kids opportunities in Hong Kong to play. Well, that that's great uh, for me and, and our coaches. We believe in that, but we're also competitive too. And uh, we like to compete. So most of our coaches also play in the adult leagues here. And uh, so that helps. They get to get have that competitiveness when they play. Uh, because they don't get it when they coach here. So unless you're on travel teams that are going away and playing in northern China like we did my first few years, once we got organized, then we had all the best players in Hong Kong and uh, we were able to go up where we were normally going into Beijing in, in the early years and getting beat 20 to nothing. Now we were able to go up and win and go up into Harbin and win. Yeah. And so these were big strides that we were making. At the same time, we weren't getting any players that were able to go on and make the jump. So for me, one thing, it's, it's the culture that we live in here. And uh, so I think, as I said, some professional teams here so that kids can follow. And uh, I mean, I know that we're moving into a new rink in Zhangguanou. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, because that could change a lot. That, that is actually, exciting. Yeah, and um, uh, you know, so that'll that'll be uh, um, like starting a new program out for that community. Yeah, and uh, then we'll slowly move our programs from Mega Box and keep some there. Yeah, and uh, while we get our new rink organized, and until the following season. We'll just have to see what happens with with the virus yeah. and and how that proceeds. And uh, uh, but we don't see a lot of traveling. We always look at travel dates because teams try to be a year ahead of the schedule. 
but it's hard to it's do hard that. To do right hard now. to do that right now. So with the new venues coming and uh, all the great programs that are underway in the city, and including the ones you're involved in, where do you see hockey's future in the city? Well, I don't see it changing in the way that I would like to see it change, where Hong Kong is known as a, as a hotbed for hockey. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some good players here uh, that can play prep hockey in the States and do look to go to s- schools in, in, in Canada and the northeast of, uh, of the United States. Um, but I think until they get pro teams here, and then those pro, pro teams get out into the community and and really promote ice hockey, it will be difficult to put a player in the NHL. You may be able to grow the numbers, um, but right now I think everybody is, is just trying to survive on, uh, until we can get a chance to, to get back to where we were be before the virus uh, started right well i certainly hope that happens and it's i feel like it's an exciting time with the two new rinks coming and hopefully things can get a little bit better you know with the protests and and the virus and and we can get back to hockey's growth uh, continuing here in the city so let's talk a little bit now about your relationship with mark pavlich i mean i i think i first stumbled upon your stories uh, about mark on facebook and at that time, I didn't even know that you were coaching or involved with coaching here in the city. I just saw that you had been helping uh, the NHLPA's alumni dealing with, with the Mark Pavlich story. Um, what have you been doing to help him in recent years and, and trying to help him through his battle with, with mental illness? Well, I initially saw the story on Mark. I hadn't seen Mark for 10 years, and if you don't know, he played on the 1980 U.S. Olympic team that won the gold medal. Miracle on Ice. Uh, Miracle on Ice, and he was a big part of that team. And uh, he was such a great player. I mean, he was just floating around when Herb Brooks asked him to come to the Rangers. He was in Europe, and when he came to play his rookie season, I don't know, I think he scored 33 goals, and he was just such a great player. And I hadn't seen him I think in maybe 10 years and I saw the story on Facebook where he had been arrested and uh, for assault on a neighbor and then after that had been deemed mentally unfit to stand trial and dangerous and uh, committed to a, a psychiatric ward to to await trial and to await evaluations and that's where he still is right now and it's been almost a year yeah so when I first saw, saw the story, I thought, well, I need to get a hold of somebody here to, to find out what's going on here. And I found his sister uh, on Facebook, and I messaged her, and we connected. And I asked her if anybody had called. Uh, did the U.S. Olympic team call you or, or the Rangers or the NHL or anybody call uh, where Mark has played? And, and she said, no, to this point, nobody's called us. So she's, uh, I'm at a, she told me that she was at a loss of where to turn. And I said, okay, let, let's see what we can do here. And so, so I started making some calls and then I started writing about, about Mark and I got a phone number for him and was able to talk to him. And through this experience has sort of been his voice and, Told people a little bit about our conversations. Our conversations are taped, mm-hmm. 
mm -hmm. uh, when you phone the, the facility. So we can't get too much into the legal aspects of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I just try to be positive with him because he's in a place where there's a lot of negativity. Yeah. And uh, so, so well, this is how it all, all came about. Okay. And I initially got some players on board to, to help out, uh, to us to form a group to try and reach out. And um, sort of found out that that the NHL will sort of pass things down to the NHL Players Association, and then they will pass things down to the NHL Alumni Association. So the Alumni Association, led by Glenn Healy, are sort of stuck with all the problems to, to face and work out for any former players that are encountering any any problems. And the alumni's always done a lot of great work, but there's a lot, a lot of players in need of help. Yeah. And we're not even talking about the players in Europe. We're just talking about the players who, who have come forward. And, uh, and, you know, there was the lawsuit with CTE and brought up upon the players to bond the owners. And uh, so the NHL has gone through that lawsuit, and CTE is just a bad word to say when you want to talk to anybody. Nobody will, doesn't matter <laughs> your best friend was, if he's with uh, an organization in the NHL, he's not going to get back to you. Or he might get back to you on the side and say, sorry, I can't get back to you, or I can't talk about it. Just because if something is misinterpreted in any way, then it's another lawsuit. And, right. And they don't want to be going through that, so they just tell everybody, don't talk about it. But they are starting to talk about mental health because there are some players that have come forward. Mm -hmm. um, Corey Hirsch being one of them that has really yep. um, uh, advocated on mental health. And now there are some NHL teams that have jumped on board with uh, with trying to help players out because the, the stats, uh, USA... Or USA uh, Mental health institution are are one in four people right. uh, are diagnosed with some type of disorder. So, so on a hockey team, that's that's five players right there yeah. that have have problems, and you're not even talking about in your in your office and your employees. And uh, so, I think it's something that the NHL has to deal with. And do they have enough resources to do that? And I don't think they do. So there has to be more help. So there, uh, Sean Antosky is another player, uh, another advocate, and of course Clint Malarchuk, yeah. who who really helps out. Uh, he is more focused on veterans uh, coming back from Afghanistan, and uh, he works a lot with equine therapy. Mm -hmm. A rancher has horses, and and uh, so they develop a connection together uh, with the veterans with horses. And he sees a lot of uh, positive results from that. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of uh, the way that this whole thing with Mark Pavlitt started was before the incident is that I had a dream about him. And we were riding horses together. This was three months before I, I read about the article on Facebook. And I hadn't been thinking about Mark. hadn't been looking at any videos of yeah. Olympic team and he wasn't on my mind and I don't know why I had the the dream but it was us at a ranch 
So I talked to his sister about this, and I says, well, maybe we can put a ranch together where players can come. We have the right people there to help them, and we do the we do a similar thing with Clint with equine therapy and use animals that also need help, and that may not just be horses. Maybe that's other animals mm-hmm. also, and we try and hook the two up together and try and get some, some results and uh, because... Uh, like I said, there's just so many players that need help, especially players that played in the 70s and early 80s, players that are around my age in their 60s now that uh, that are suffering from, from some type of disorder yeah. and may not want to come forward. Yeah. And we don't want those kind of players not to be able to get the help that they need. Yeah, and it's so... So admirable uh, what you're doing and, and being the voice for Mark and, you know, so much effort going into uh, awareness around men's mental health and mental health around sports and in, in, in especially in hockey. And there's so many more people coming forward now. These stories are so important. And um, tell us about the book that you're putting together and what we can expect when that comes out. Well, I started, as I said, I started writing on Facebook and then that sort of reminded me of some other hockey stories, and I started telling some some other hockey stories that I'd been through with the Rangers and and playing with Ernie, and so I've 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 sort of got three books going on now, all at once. Yeah, so a lot of stories. I, I need to try and try and either make it a book about my career, make it a book about Mark, or or make it a book about my time, my 13 years here in Southeast Asia. So I'm trying to just, I'm just trying to write right now. And uh, there are times when, of course, that gets interrupted, of course, with the lockdown again, coming again. And and you think that it would give me more time. And, uh, but there's a lot of other things going on. So yeah. there are days when I feel like I can write the whole day. And then there, there are three, four days where I don't want to, but I don't want to go through any of it. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had a timeline where I thought it might be July, but I'm I'm more looking at a timeline more. If I finish, it'll be sometime, maybe Christmas time. Yeah. I, I think, but I think I want to try and make it just, it all, I don't want to spend time. I don't have enough time to, yeah. to write three books. Yeah. So I like to do it, uh, try to combine them together. And I'll have some help uh, during the end. I have a couple of uh, writers who were journalists or still are, yeah. And um, were were beat writers uh, when I played for the Rangers, so I still know them, and they still have columns that they write. And so they've sort of given me a little bit of advice and have read what I've been writing. And uh, when I'm writing, I just speak like. It was when the story happened. That's right. And uh, I certainly enjoy reading your stories. Well, thank I mean, you. You've got so many great stories to tell, and you have a, a real knack of, yeah, just being uh, real honest about your stories, and it comes across in your writing. So please continue to do that, and I can't wait to, to see the book finished and uh, and read all those stories. Yeah, I have friends uh, that have contacted me and say. You're not going to tell that story, are you? <laughs> I'm sure there's lots <laughs> you can't tell. So, I'd like to do a book on the stories that I can't write. Yeah, that, that's that's well, what I'd I, like to read that one too. That's what I'd really like to do. That's called your diary. I but, don't know if we could put that out, but uh, I'll, I'll have to be long, long gone by that time. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's hilarious. But listen, Barry, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk hockey with me and share your stories and your your career with us. Right now, you're in a place like you said. You're you're 63 years old. You're here in Hong Kong, doing everything you can to help grow hockey, not only in Hong Kong but all over Asia. Um, what does it mean to you to be part of it, and and what's next for you? Well, I was, I was very fortunate to be offered the position in the first place uh, <clears throat> by by Thomas Wu, and uh, to be able to be part of the academy and the growing of hockey in Hong Kong and. So I'm very, very proud that I've been able to be a part of that. And uh, I just hope that it keeps going forward. And that's that's what we want. And that's what I would like to see. Um, I don't know for how much longer that I'd be here. I love Hong Kong. I consider it to be my home now. I haven't had a chance to be back in Canada, although I have one son that lives in Canada. And... Uh, just trying to finish university in in Nova Scotia and uh, has been having difficulty doing that with the virus and what yeah. has happened with with schools and we all know I think most of the classes have been done online now everywhere yeah so we'll see how that ends up and uh, but I know that I will continue to be involved with Mark Pavlich and and the ranch and teammates for life and our website will be up soon and yeah can you plug that website now or well, even though it's not up well even though it's not up it it will be called the ranch teammates for life okay. and uh so we've had some good people jump on board with us now and i think that's going to continue to grow um uh, you know there there's just so much that needs to be done that's not being done and then you know, I also get questions from people who who aren't involved in hockey, and uh, and need help. And so, where do they turn if if there's uh, not the right facility uh, for them to be diagnosed properly? I know with some players they're not diagnosed properly till maybe they see the the sixth or seventh evaluator. Right. And uh, so it takes time to to nail it down for some people. And uh, the thing is that. I think that, especially for NHL players, there should be should be a hotline that they can call 24 hours a day mm-hmm. at any time. I know that there are support systems from the NHL teams in the cities themselves for former players, but there are some players that, you know, have other problems that just want to, and blame it on hockey, blame it on the people uh, that were running hockey at the time, and they, they don't want anything to do with it. You may try and want to offer them all the help that you can give them, and they'll st- still turn their back and right. and do their own thing. And we hope that at some point those those people receive help. So when you when you play the game and you play against a lot of great competitors, and then afterwards you want to help each other, uh, I love that part of the game. That, uh, like I said, when I first broke in, you didn't even talk to anybody on the Flyers uh, or on Boston. I mean, it was it was war. Yeah. And uh, so it's nice to see that the war continues on the ice when the teams play, but off the ice it isn't like that anymore. And uh, so we hope the the players that are, are playing now <clears throat> also will realize 
how much through stories of players that have come forward that that have their uh, own disorders that they've gone through and had to deal with that they'll be able to help other players yeah and that's that's the whole point of telling your story is it being able to help somebody else that sound brings us to the end of the interview will you stick around for our overtime questions sure will all right overtime tonight is brought to you by yardley brothers beer Got yourself some spicy chicken wings or delicious pizza? What better way to wash it down than with some Yardley Brothers beer? That's right, folks. We're stoked to have Yardley Brothers beer as one of our sponsors. These guys are known for their scrumptious sour beers, as well as loads of other delicious brews like Lama Island IPA, Hong Kong Bastard Imperial Ale, Quit Your Job Saison, and my favorite, Machine Man Pale Ale. Want to get some of this delicious stuff inside your belly? You can find it at the Globe, Hill 65, Roundhouse, or Lama Grill. Well, heck, even swing by City Super or the Wanch. They got some bottles there. Find yourself wandering over on Lama Island? Yardley Brothers even have a beer shack over there. Their new location is even closer to the Ferry Pier. They'll be serving cold pints from November. Visit their website for more information at yardleybrothers.hk. Overtime! All right, Barry, I'm going to ask you a series of 10 rapid-fire questions, or one-timers, followed by one final bonus question so for our you, listeners. You want, you want one-word answer? Yes, one-word answers. Crosby or McDavid? Crosby. Nordiques or Whalers? Nordiques. Carey Price or Tuka Rask? Carey Price. Donald Bashir or Marty McSorley? Marty McSorley. Ovechkin or Malkin? Ovechkin. Lindros or Neely? Neely. Scott Stevens or Wendell Clark? Wendell Stevens. <laughs> Matt Sundin or Peter Forsberg? Peter Forsberg. Pierre Maguire or Kelly Rudy? Kelly Rudy. Fighting or no fighting? Fighting. Finally, if you could play one more game in the NHL, where would it be and why? Be the seventh game of the Stanley Cup Finals in Madison Square Garden, same as it was in 1994 with the Canucks and the Rangers, where I was living in Vancouver and I had a party at my place and I was the only one that was cheering for the Rangers and all the... 50 of the other people <laughs> left the house, not even saying goodbye to me, just leaving. So I was the only one happy in the house. And can you picture yourself scoring the game winner in game seven? Well, as a kid, I did picture it. Yeah. And I think a lot, a lot of kids do. And it's amazing to think that those that get that opportunity and the feeling of it yeah. is, uh, is just a dream. Absolutely. Barry, thanks you, thank you again so much uh, for coming in and being a part of the podcast. Best of luck um, with, the, with the website and the book. And I look forward to having you back on sometime uh, next year to, to talk about it and uh, share it with our listeners. Great. Th thanks a lot for inviting me, Chris. That was Across the Pond, and that's a wrap. All right. Thank you to our amazing sponsors. As always, The Big Bite, Yardley Brothers Beer. Ben Marin's Photography, Sunset Studio, Print House Limited, and Asia Sports Tech. 
Finally, thank you to Lauren Orris and Fiona Chow, who have helped us as advisors and liaisons to Hong Kong's hockey world. To support the podcast, check out our amazing merchandise on our website at acrossthepondhk.com. Check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Across the Pond HK.